Hello, hello, guess who? This is Andre, and this is a new episode of the Localization Podcast. This is episode number 27. This time my guest is Patricia Paladini-Adel. Patricia used to be the Globalization Director at CA Technologies before she recently decided to venture into her own consulting business. When I initially spoke with Patricia, I thought that our interview will be focused on internationalization, which is a word I can barely even say. But now that I'm looking at my notes after the recording, I think the center of this interview is innovation and technology, which are two things that are very close to my heart. So, in this episode, Patricia will tell you what it is to think like a developer, a salesman, and a project manager. She will share a very entertaining practice about how they decided to educate internal teams. They created a roadshow and they put together villains fighting heroes. That's super exciting. Finally, Patricia will tell you why the traditional LSPs have to reinvent in order to stay competitive. So if you want to learn more about the technology and localization and how it drives the innovation, this interview will definitely give you the answers. Hey, you know what? This time we have a sponsor, our very first sponsor. Here's a message from them. Hello, we are the new sponsor of the Localization Podcast. We have a new website called andrezito.com where we collect all the knowledge that we have gained over the so many years in this industry. Everything is free, you just have to go to andrezito.com and you can learn and have fun. Oh bullshit, thank you. That sponsor sounded a little bit fishy, but what can we do? We are a small independent podcast. But anyway, this is where the actual interview starts. Please, let's enjoy. Right, uh, hello Patricia, welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are nice you doing? You. I'm doing great, thank you. Where exactly are you located right now? Right now, I'm located in a very small room of my apartment <laughs> because I'm in Barcelona and we have this COVID-19 situation. So basically we are locked down at home. So I'm really locked down in my home, real locked down because I'm basically trying to cope with all the activities and the family life and work and presentations uh, through this new situation we are living right now. Hopefully in a couple of weeks we will allow to go out and get some fresh air and situation will get better and we will enjoy the outdoors again. Yeah, Spain is one of the worst countries that were hit by COVID, right? Yes, I think we are the second one, the second worst. But we're doing good, we're doing good, and the situation has really improved, and you can see all these groups getting down, so we, are, we have gone through over the peak, and, and we're doing good, so situation is starting to change. Not the economy, obviously, this is really hitting not only the health, but also the economy, but at least from the health point of view, we are starting to recover, and people is starting to feel a little bit safe, and it's... People is really doing a good job. People is really staying home, helping each other. It's it's a really interesting situation from a sociological point of view, I would say. 
it's really we are learning a lot from your LinkedIn profile I believe that you started your own company just quite recently I think it's maybe less than a year if I'm not mistaken right sure yeah so how, 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 how has your life changed with COVID like were you working a lot from home before or did you have an office to go to no, I'm working from home, and I think I started officially my own my my own company like the day before the lockdown. Mm. So that's very interesting. <laughs> good timing. Good <laughs> timing. Good timing. You no, know, but I'm working. Oh, I was planning to work from home, so that's kind of nice. No, no, no major changes. But yes, I started my own company, Paladini Global. I want to provide consultancy services to companies in order to help them to to streamline the localization process by implementing the right uh, right workflows uh, so they can you know make localization like basically an afterthought instead of having to spend time people and money to to set up localization process yeah we'll talk about that more later I would be interested to find out how you got into localization in the first place, if you remember that. Yes. That was a long time ago, I'm afraid <laughs> to say. <laughs> uh, I, I studied biology. That was my what I did study right when I was 18. So I studied biology and I was really enjoying it, but I was also enjoying very much languages. So at some point I decided that I wanted to become a medical translator. So I moved from biology to to translation, a translation school at college, and basically specialized on uh, medical translation because I have all this biology background. However, when I was just about to finish my degree and the master's and everything, uh, I come across to some modules, some hours in, in, in a particular course of what they call translation technology, technology applied to translation. That was very new. I mean, we didn't even have an email at that time at college, <laughs> okay? And translation memories and cut tools were just happening. So that was very, very early process. And then I kind of realized that um, localization, meaning adapting software and to, to you know translating software interfaces, at that time, plus the technology that the kind of help translators to to translate to to do really take a lot of profitable translation. And again, remember in that time dictionaries were on paper, so we had to go to exams, you know, with old dictionaries because mm -hmm. we didn't have laptops mm -hmm. yet. Then we realized that that was very interesting, and I basically thought, well, that's the point future. The old translation techniques with paper and dictionaries, this is not going to stay. So that's how I specialized on CAD tools. Initially, I started working on CAD tools, so I became a CAD expert. I was a travels expert at that time <laughs> for a company I used to work in Dublin at that time. And then I went back to college teaching CAD tools and technology applied to translation and localization. And after that, I started to work in a corporation, which basically uh, they needed uh, to set up from scratch mm -hmm. the whole uh, globalization thing. Mm -hmm. So I was taking care of the technology also from another person. 
Was Stratos one of the early CAD tools? Stratos was one of the early commercial CAD tools. There were another ones like Omega and that time we had Dejavu, we have Transit, Stratos, uh, and I think a couple of more, but they were very simple. Basically, you have this dongle that you had to attach. Uh, maybe you are too young for that, but we were I remember to dongles. I remember dongles. Yeah. Dongles to, to the <laughs> laptops. That, yeah. On top, you would plug in the, the printer. <laughs> And that, you know, and if you didn't have a dongle, you were that you were dead basically. <laughs> so that, yeah, I think those were the the initial tools we we were working with, especially at college at least. And not everybody was working in, in language agencies or language providers. They were still delivering translations through on paper or an, on a floppy disk. I'm feeling very old right now, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I know a lot, a lot has changed, right, in those years. A lot has changed. So, so you a mentioned lot. that you worked for this corporation. I think like mm-hmm. we can say it was CA Technologies because it's on your LinkedIn profile, right? And if I'm not mistaken, you worked there for 12 years, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you were the, the globalization director. So I'm wondering, like, what are your memories? Like, how has the localization evolved during those years? I worked at, it was Computer Associate, that was the original name. Then it changed to CA Technologies. That's a North American corporation of software. They, they basically um, uh, produce software and we were helping the, the corporation to localize all this software, the, the products. Things have changed a lot. When I was hired, and I was hired as a translator, by the way, as a Spanish translator, but in a month, I, or in a couple of months, I become a translation manager, and I think it was two years later, I become a director, globalization director. At that beginning, they didn't have any tool, any technology in place. So basically, we were getting files for translations to email. And... Mm-hmm. Not, you know, the worst part of that is that we were doing software localization. So we would get a TXT file that <laughs> was supposed to be a multi-language file. So you were supposed to translate the Spanish after the French and then send it to somebody else, maybe. Oh my God. Him. So they would type in that TXT file, the Chinese and then the Japanese, and they go back to a project manager. So there was... Horrible. It must have been such a long cycle, right? Like if it's like language after language. It didn't run in parallel? No, 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 because there was no shared option. So basically you could not, you know, if you want to run in parallel, that means somebody has to copy paste. Yes, yes, all yes, the yes, yes, yes. It was a disaster. Well, that's why we, they hired the whole team. <laughs> <laughs> so that was good. <laughs> and, and right, you know, then we start to realize that yeah, this is not going to work. And they brought in, um, is that okay to mention tool, commercial tools? Yeah, yeah, of mm-hmm. course, of course. So they brought in at that time um, SDL workflow, which was some kind of online platform, SDL based. And that was what we used. We set up to use that platform for documentation. All the documentation was in authority at that time. And I was expert in FrameMaker and several other 
DTP tools because I had been teaching those tools in the in, at college. I was in parallel. I was teaching at college at the masters. And so basically, we set up this authorate which was similar from um, the, you know, from a content management tool to to FrameMaker. And so we set up SDL workflow connected to authorate in order to translate the documentation. So that was kind of the first CAD tool that we happened to have. There was a lot of limitations at that time, so we end up downloading those IDB files, sending them to the translation provider, or doing the translation in-house. That was a mixture. Um, and on the software side, we decided to use Catalyst at that time. And obviously, this improved a lot on process, so we started to have time managing terminology, putting together a proper term base, etc. But those tools, as I said, had a lot of limitations because not, not, everything was desktop. Um, sharing translation memories was not really like on, on real time was not an option. For the particularity of the software files we used to have as CA technologies, um, Catalyst was not really able to support them because we did have like mainframe files which are totally different uh, story a huge uh, products uh, for desktop um, IT desktop tools and security so basically Catalyst was not really the best tool to use so what we decided uh, you know we kept the authority as the workflow part for a while and we decided to concentrate on software and we did develop software tools we developed software tools, internal software tools that would support those mainframe files and any other file type. We were working with more than 70 different file types. Uh, basically, the products that CA technology was selling at that time, most of them, there was not that many um, um, organic development. Most of the projects were created by acquisition. So the CA would acquire different softwares and they would put together with some others and create a suite. So imagine the, the you know the legacy you would have there like um, different coding uh, languages, different translations done by all sorts of, of companies. So managing all these huge amount of files and all this legacy content was really a challenge. So that's why we decided to develop two kind of tools for software localization. One was uh, source code scanner. We wanted to, you know, we wanted to make sure that the files that development teams were treated as for translation were actually translatable. Mm -hmm. They didn't have an uh, embedded text that they were supporting Unicode, um, that, you know, variables uh, and tags were used in some kind of um, standard uh, way, etc. And the other tool we created was uh, an editor, a translation editor for software files, very much customized to our needs. Because the only way we would find out two parts to generate those resource files for translation out of this mare magnum of, of, of coding and file format was using our own, you know, generating like um, intermediate file format which would, would content the English, the translation, and a lot of metadata, because metadata 
was the key in order to get those files translated. And the only way to process this file, which was a TXT file, was doing that on own editor. And I was involved in all this process from the very beginning. And that was for me the best learning in, in this area I have, I have ever had. So for me, working at CA Technology was really, really, really uh, a great opportunity to, to understand our area from the very, 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 from the very, very bottom, because we were solving challenges all the time. And sometimes it was really frustrating, I would say. However, it was really a learning experience because I managed to understand, I managed to think like a developer, like a salesman, like a project manager, uh, like, you know, how can you manage cost when you are developing a tool? This helped me also to manage uh, multi, multi, uh, multilingual teams worldwide. So I was managing people in India, developers in India, developers in China, developers in Japan, translators, project managers, uh, sales guides, because we were supposed to contact sales guide to try to understand what were the localization requirements, etc. So that was like the best school ever for me on 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 all area and after the software then we move away from outsourcing and, uh, and SDL workflow we move to another cloud-based solution for documentation documentation move to confluence which is a wiki wiki type content editor and then we connect it to lingotech which is a cloud-based uh, tms so you know we were we were always um, heading, you know, changing and ahead of the industry, I would say. We were one of the first ones implementing machine translation. We implemented machine translation, I think, in 2007 or 8, where machine translation was really new in the area. I mean, not the concept of machine translation that, that has started in the early 70s, last century. <laughs> but the, the, how to apply this to software localization and documentation. Basically, you know how American companies work. You know, basically, out of the box, the, the, out of the box, or out of the blue, you would get somebody saying, okay, we need to reduce cost by half. How can you do that? <laughs> so, okay, so we have to translate double uh, the, uh, the, you know, half cost. <laughs> so we have to implement machine translation. So that was the main driving factor why you gave MT a shot at that time? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I'm going to say something which will, you know, sound very unpopular in the industry. But at that time, we were, we had a team of 120 people worldwide. Okay. And for a large corporation, corporation, this type of huge teams doing localization testing, uh, translation, validation, review, everything that like was the ideal scenario. This is not sustainable in, in this type of company because when they look at the numbers, you know, the, the first thing you see is why do we need so many people and why do we have such a huge budget for, for translation? So my my role, or at least not at the beginning because I you know I was participating that day and took the role, but the, the, the non-spoken goal was to dismantle the team, was to reduce the team. And, and it was really, really hard because we had very good people, extremely good people that we have to terminate. 
because when we implement machine translation, obviously, uh, we negotiate a better rates with the vendors. We eliminate the internal translation team. We eliminate all the testing team. That was a progressive, not it didn't happen overnight. But we moved from, in 10 years, we moved from 100 plus people, 120 plus people to nine people to manage everything. And the volume were huge, were double, basically. Mm -hmm. And I'm going through that process, as I said, was really uh, painful because for me it was like, you know, we have the best team in the world. Why do we have to dismantle it? But now, I mean, now and not now, but you know, in the latest years at CA, I realized that that is the approach. That is the trend in the market. So you cannot go against market trend. It's, it doesn't matter. You need to take advantage of those, that situation and invent and innovate. So the last years I was at CA, my main role was basically innovation. Apart from managing the process, because we managed to get to a very high level of automation. But apart from managing, I was really innovating and looking at the market, looking at the trends and seeing how could we implement those trends in the market. How do you remember the first response of all the translation teams when they saw machine translation? I can assume that like when you started, like the quality was probably pretty poor, right? Uh, uh, the first shot was really bad. People, you know, didn't want to use machine translation, didn't want to become post editors. But we did something, not me, but the team did something which I think was very clever is that, you know, we told them that that's what we have to do. So that's the, the, the upper management goal. We have to implement that. But they became, it became their own project. Okay. So what we did, because that time machine translation, there was no neural machine translation, not at all. So what we did was, was involve the internal team or evaluating different engines. So we were using different engines based on, for, for each language, okay? Depending on the evaluation we had done. And there was a mixture of rule base and statistical base at that time. And we involved the team on educating the engine and also training the engines and training the technical writers and developers. So we spent a lot of time working with technical writers and developers on how to write for machine translation. And that was done by the translation. So the translators became the content educators for machine translation. And they embraced the project. I think, you know, uh, that would help them to embrace the project because they could see that going through all this education for technical writers and developers, the output of the MT was very good. So we, they realized that the output was really improved, especially for rule base, because, you know, and we were using technical writers were using Acrolink at that time. So we worked with the Acrolink team to create rules, Acrolink rules for machine translation. So basically the output was very good. So internal translators plus all language service providers, they really, you know, they realized that they were translating more in less time so although the rates were obviously lower the, the the output was very positive so i assume that if you were at the forefront of innovation when it comes to like maybe like even like our industry in general is that like where the idea originated for you to become a consultant 
later on with your own business? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because I uh, happened to, to sit next to the VP of innovation in the company. This guy was hired in Barcelona and he was driving the innovation and he was working like, he had different projects uh, with different teams and he was working like, like a startup mentor. So I learned a lot because I started working with him in machine translation, in processing, in, you know, a lot of different projects, even we even created a decision support system to select what to translate and how to translate. Maybe we can talk about that later. But I really learned on how to evaluate the industry and how to design processes and tools from a startup point of view. That you go for a minimal VMO product, that you look for funding, you pivot as necessary in order to accommodate to the requirements. And, and this industry, you know, at that time, the industry starts changing a lot. So, so I got this ability or this, uh, this, um, expertise, if you want, on, on to identify the requirements in our area and to try to find and design innovations. And yes, as you said, I think that's what helped me to, to the, you know, when I took the decision that maybe I should start my own consultancy, this way of thinking, this training that I had had a TA uh, working with the innovation team really helped me to, to understand how to become a consultant, how to ask the right questions for different companies or in order to understand what are the requirements and how to challenge also the technology that's already in the industry. Yeah, I, I'm really impressed and also kind of surprised that you kind of like had this like a startup hub within like a big organization. I think that's like very, very important. And many big organizations fail because like they're slow and they're used to their processes you know they've been using for many years but they lack mm -hmm. this kind of like this mm -hmm. startup mindset mm -hmm. to test and explore new things which i believe is what you guys were doing and i really like that yeah yeah ca was very good uh we had uh one of the uh, stakeholders that was hired by ca uh, to do to to lead this innovation that was my bp innovation bp manager he used to work from Xbox. He was the guy that that did all the Xbox. Uh, so basically, mm, yeah, that was the innovation was managed as CA as as a startup. But this is also happening now to a lot of companies. I mean, this is today. You, know, you go to Amazon. Amazon they work like small startups. They, I think they even have like a wall somewhere that, you know, you have an idea and you write it down and, you know, you get votes. And if it is voted in, you know, you go to a certain number of votes to go and develop. So although CA technology was a very traditional software development company at the beginning, they were leaders in innovation and they were also leaders in things like DevOps and how to you know, you know, cloud-based technology and DevOps, how to, de you know, to develop tools in this DevOps area and how to um, adjust or redesign the software to work, you know, to, to, to go to follow the trends in the market. So did the shift approach originate during CA or did yes. you have it afterwards? My shift-life localization approach originated <laughs> during CA. Uh, because we realized, or, you know, I realized, especially 
with this new innovation hat or mentality I had, that the, the, the globalization team or the translation team traditionally was a very reactive team. So, so they react. Something happened. Oh my God, I, uh, terminology is wrong. You react, but it's always late. It's always a reaction. And you always have a pure uh, um, project manager in the middle trying to wear all the hats, communicating with translators, with language service providers, with developers, trying to do the best, uh, working late hours, trying to, you know, organize or orchestrate all this localization process. And I had one BP, I mean, I'm, I have had great mentors in the industry. I have to say I'm, I'm very, very, very lucky because one of the PPs came up in PPs that was in charge of all this tool change uh, for software development. He came with the idea of, of compliance, compliance from, from the very beginning. For example, he, he set up the team in different areas and globalization was part of this team. One was uh, securability. If you develop software, it has to be secure. It has to be compliant with certain security uh, rules or requirements that may vary depending on the country, may vary depending on the software. There are a lot of, of variables there. But there's no point of developing something which is not compliant to these security requirements. Okay. So instead of develop software something which is not compliant, let's make it compliant from the very, very beginning. So that was a shift left on security, make it compliant. So, you you know, you are not, we are not going to accept anything which is not compliant. The first thing you have to do, obviously, is to identify which are these compliant, which are these required. Another area uh, was the accessibility. By accessibility, especially in the US, means that you have to be compliant with certain, uh, certain legislation to make sure that the software can be accessed by anybody, blind, deaf, um, etc. And also in any kind of, of, uh, hardware, mobile or laptop or traditional desktops, any, any different, uh, navigator, et cetera. So there is an accessibility compliance. And in the US, they are very, very, very strong on that. So again, there's no point of developing a software with great features, amazing, amazing options if it is not going to be compliant. So if you are not going to be able to sell it because it's not compliant. So same with technical writers. You have to write technical documentation in a way that can be used by, you know, by, by the, the, the consumer, the, the customer, obviously, but also that can be localized. There's no way if you write something that we cannot chant or we cannot reuse translation memories, etc. So, um, um, there was another area of, of shift left, which was DevOps. So make sure that you use the appropriate, you know, tools, uh, in a giant environment to develop software following a certain, uh, requirements, especially the, the agile, uh, development uh, framework. And we also bring, uh, brought it at that time global session because it was the perfect tool, you know, the perfect project that goes across all these other projects. So if you want to localize your project, you have to be compliant with certain requirements. In that case, software localization and documentation. If you're not complying with uh, Unicode support, if your files are not stored in resource bundles, um, if your variables are used in an active way that basically make 
the content for translation basically nonsense for a translator if you don't provide in-context translation even with a screenshot or with a proper in-context editor um etc we're not going to localize your your, your your software because basically the cost is going to be too high and it's going to be over front okay so that's where the shift left uh, approach idea came in on 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 how you know let's give the content creators at that time what's only software and documentation but that can be moved to any other any other areas let's give them the power the education because some of the times they do things wrong or non-compliant because nobody has told them to do yes, it in a different yes, way yes, yes. okay so let's invest in in helping those teams to understand the requirement to deliver files which are compliant so we can automate the localization process by automation means just use the technology in the in the area the tms technology to manage files up and down to apply tms to apply translation memory and let's give more power and time to translators that will have to post edit those are the guys that 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 really matter on a localization process and typically those are the guys that they don't have time the rates may not be uh, um, good enough for them you know let's put the, the focus on the left developers content creators marketers let's automate as much as possible in the process let's eliminate as much as possible the role of the project manager and again this is something i'm becoming very unpopular in or i used to become very unpopular in the industry <laughs> now you know i get some feedback which start to be positive which I, i'm glad and let's help translators too you know to to have all the all the information they need and and before you you know just start bombarding me with questions on the project manager um i'm not saying the project manager role is not important it's very important but we need to you know it can be utilized in another way in this educating technical writers or educating the content creators supporting translators and building this relationship with the customer etc should not be used on creating quotes or uh dealing with translators trying to get uh resources uh fighting for deadlines etc mm -hmm, mm -hmm. don't worry i'm not going to bombard you with questions about project managers because i basically came to the same conclusion that you did a long time before like when i was working at autodesk so yeah i think it's like one of the the biggest waste in our industry like when pms like have to like manually copy take the files from somewhere store them somewhere send millions of emails just to get things translated you know a couple of words so i totally mm -hmm. support you on that what i'm wondering more about is you mentioned the education and the compliance uh, when it comes to content creation <clears throat> i'm wondering how you did that education did you create some material did you do it like in person that was a very funny part of this story. <laughs> uh, we, and that applies to CA technology because it's a big company. So you may want to do it different with other companies, but that was so funny. I really enjoyed that part. We, we created like a, a, a road show. So we were traveling to the different hubs. We were agile at that time. Wow, so I that like means that. developers, developers were uh, located in five major hubs. 
and they were agile and they have all these stand-ups, etc. So we went to these different hubs, development hubs, and and we make a show basically. I mean, <laughs> we went on the stage. We had we we you know we we you know asked them to come. You know we, we set up all these calls with a nice food and and all this, and we basically were explaining them what that means to be compliant with security, accessibility, technical writer, and localization. So, so we put together some, some, uh, villains and some heroes. Yes. It was so funny. <laughs> so the villains, I mean, the focus, very important. The focus was hits to help heroes. Okay. Because we were telling developers and technical writers that they were heroes, but they were attacked by certain villains. A villain could be hard-coded strings. A villain could be uh, non-unicode uh, uh, support. A villain can be secu you know, security issues, etc. So particularly for, for localization, I really invented some villains and we were using like all these cartoons images. Oh, I love it. So we were telling them, hey, I mean, you are not doing a good job basically because you cannot, because you really have to fight against those villains that they are not helping you to deliver because basically you don't know what you have to deliver. So with that show, we held them. We were lining out very, clear, very clearly to their requirements. So we were giving hacks to the heroes to fight the villains okay and they love it basically they they really <laughs> love it so so in, in in the localization area basically i told them okay those are the intn requirements the internationalization requirements that you have to meet okay if you are complying with these requirements and you here you have the documentation here you have a tool that was a source scanner that we have developed Okay, that was basically integrated with the development environment. So use the scanner. They didn't even know there was a scanner that we have developed. Use the scanner and validate. I mean, there are going to be tons or thousands of false positives. Yes, we know, but use it so you will understand what are the requirements. And you know, the 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 answer was really positive. Basically, developers they you know they are developers they. They want to be told what to use or how to do something, and they do it because they are really great minds. So the the output was was very good. I mean, I'm not going to say that everything was wonderful and overnight all the files were perfect because we still have a lot of legacy and legacy products that were developed in the very waterfall process. Um, this is something you have to cope with. You cannot really, you know. But things started to change. We were getting. I mean, uh, this shift-left approach also makes sense in this current scenario because you don't get any more huge files of software for translation. You get small chunks, very often, but a small chunk, which is the agile localization. Well, I don't like to, to call it agile localization. I don't mean anything, but this is like the continued localization for software or for product development in the agile environment. You get a small chunks. Okay, it's no change of context. So, so the, the, the management is really easy or simple, simple. Let's put it simple. Let's say simple because it's really, you don't need like three months to the, to, to translate something because the volumes are going to be small. So they started to realize that 
and they were very happy and very eager to help. And we really have a lot of fun <laughs> with these villains and heroes approach that, that we use. You mainly mentioned developers. Did you have a different strategy to educate marketing people or people who were creating documentation? That was our next customer, like internal stakeholder. We didn't go that, that we didn't reach that far. But yes, I think we would have a different strategy because they use different tools and because the content is very different. So marketing works in a different way. Um, definitely you have a lot of work or, you know, we can do a lot from a terminology point of view, for product name point of view, for consistency. And machine translation may not work that well in that area. So this is something you want to, to, to think about. Okay. However, from an automation point of view, it's a lot, it's a great marketing, it's a great opportunity. Because most of the teams typically still work very isolated, creating their content with their templates. So bringing all this team into a proper content management system uh, for marketing content so they can reuse and they can be consistent. That's something, I mean, some companies may be doing very good on there. But I see an opportunity there, especially with, for example, pharmaceutical companies. They don't really have, uh, the trend is to have, you know, a lot of individual creation there, which I think this is an opportunity for content management, uh, organization. And once you have a content management in place, then you can automate. If you don't have a content management in place, you cannot automate. So that's one of the requirements if you want to shift the approach. This is the, 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 keep the source in the content management. For developers, it's relatively easy because at the least, they're going to be using GitHub. But for other areas, for technical writers, it's easy because they are used to content management. For areas like marketing or e-commerce, things become more challenging, but that's even funnier. So you mentioned, <clears throat> Uh, you shared with us how you handled education uh, within CA. I'm wondering how you approach education now with your company, with your clients. I'm doing a very similar approach. I haven't get to the point of a road show yet, but I'm planning to do that with a couple of clients. But for me, the first thing you have to do is to understand how they work. What are they doing? Why they do the things they do in the way they do it? And what are their requirements? And this is like a big part of, of the effort. Sitting next to a developer, to a technical writer, to a marketer, to, to anybody and trying to understand their requirements. Once you have the requirement, then for me, the most, the second part is to see how can we organize that in a content management system if they don't have it or if they already have how can we get it better and put together best practices or user guides on how to create that content. And what did the source is clean, organize them, you can go for a TMS to enable this automation. And 
um, I'm talking my clients typically are large, are large, medium or large corporations that they do have huge volume. This for small company may not make sense. Maybe with a SharePoint type of organization, uh, it's enough. Uh, but you know, this is the idea and this has to be customized for the different customers on the different sides of the different companies. Why are small companies not a good fit for this? Is it because of the low volume of content? It doesn't pay Could off. Could be, exactly. I'm not saying it's not good, but it's, you know, the invest, the invest, there's an investment, like a in, in, initial investment to, you know, to get everything organized. If this initial, you know, you have to calculate the cost, the overall cost, people and translation cost, and, you know, understand, and even, infrastructure and everything to understand what's the baseline so this is what you are spending now in, in the uh, in the localization of your digital content and then evaluate i mean if where you know where where can you reduce the cost if the overall doesn't pay off meaning that you need to invest a lot in the cms but the volume or the content or the of the updates because if you only need localization twice a year, maybe you don't need such an automated, uh, perfect and ideal process. So, so it's a bit, but still, I, um, I'm very interested in small companies also because they may not need like a huge new automated process, but they do need help to go to the digital transformation on the uh, digital content, multilingual digital content. So that's an area, you know, that's an area that is worth investing, especially that those small companies with an e-commerce that, you know, they are starting to grow. It goes to a point that if, if they don't stop and start delivering uh, the, 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 the content in a structured way um, the technical depth they're gonna get from a localization perspective is going to be so good so huge that they will not be able to deliver so there's room for improvement on on every area and for me the most important part is really to understand the requirements to understand the roadmap what they strategy a long time strategy and to see where they this can be happening in my experience, the large companies usually have their internal localization team, as was your experience from CA. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how do you come into the picture in this scenario where there's like a dev team and there's a localization team? Do you try to like get them together to talk and like see like what they could do together and then you just leave? Or are you mainly focusing on companies that don't have a localization internal team? I'm focusing on both type of companies, to be honest. I have analyzed, if you want, companies which are huge in localization team, huge, more than 100 people. Half of them in developers in India, half of them in the US, I mean, huge. And they were very proud of the process, very proud, because they have a great process full of manual steps. I mean, they that was their baby. They they love it, but it's nonsense mm -hmm. <laughs> because really with the technology you have we have today, these things can be done in a different way. And 
And so, so going back to your question, sorry, I think there's room for improvement because either a, a, a mature company with a very solid localization process, when you see it or when you have a look from the outside, there's a lot of things that can be changed and can be improved. And the goal is not to terminate people or to reduce the team, <laughs> or should not be, but you know, to add, to make them do whatever tasks or roles they have to, you know, to make sure they can add, uh, provide added value to the process instead of, you know, going around in circle with non-automatic or, or, or all processes. Um, and, and again, I'm very in favor of changing roles. You know, you may be an internal translator, but the volume may be high. So why don't you get a vendor, spend time as an internal translator, as a software matter expert for that particular thing, spend time in educating the vendor, in giving them the, the, the in, you know, proper education with videos or webinars or, or whatever. And then maybe you can spend part of your time doing spot checks or managing terminology. Terminology is one of the, unfortunately, we've forgotten in, in our area. Because nobody had time to do terminology management. Because the, the deadlines are all so short and that spending time and resources in terminology traditionally has been a challenge. So why don't we dedicate people that knows the, the, the content and the language spend time in terminology so this can be shared afterwards with translators? So it's really, uh, I see, um, uh, transformation of the roles in the future, not uh, eliminating people, but transforming the, 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 the job they do and getting them doing more added value tasks on the day to day. You mentioned technology. Of course, technology plays a huge role in the continuous localization. So I'm wondering that you, for your clients, like, do you have any preferred solutions that you suggest to them that they should use as a technology or is it based on what works better for each client? It is totally based on what works better for each client. I don't have any preferred technology. In fact, I think the, the current technologies uh, are getting old. Mm. Okay, and I'm, again, I'm challenging the industry right now. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying they're not good technologies, but they're starting to get old. Artificial intelligence, that's the major driving of the new technology that we will be using in the next years. And we do have what is most important for artificial intelligence, which is data. You know, it's something that translation companies and translate companies doing translation have, is that they have data because we have translation memory because we have glossary because we have workflows so we do have the data so technology in the future has to be driven by artificial intelligence and by management by exception most of the technologies today they are still too much focused on the project management role so the technology needs a pm a project manager to set up the project, to validate that everything goes fine, to to get the quote, to send whatever. So the focus is still uh, the project manager. 
instead of getting the focus on, on the content and the translator. I mean, the TMS should be able to automatically assign the tasks um, to, to the translators that did this task before. They have uh, proven uh, expertise on a particular area or a particular language. There should be automatic ways of, of validating the translations, for example, and this is something we created the um, MPV, uh, sorry, MVP at CA. We created um, like a technology that would, if you are a, like a junior translator, okay, you're going to be paid small because you're going to be learning and you are going to be reviewed. So you will have somebody reviewing you and providing you with feedback in the system, everything in the system. So the more you learn, the higher rate you will have for translator translation because the risk that you make mistake is lower because you'll be learning. So you will gonna be, your review task is gonna be lower, smaller. Okay. So that time you find a balance to review because you 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 review you get the review because you are learning. The more you improve, the less you are review because there is less risk of mistakes. And all this balancing you had automated. Yes. Really? Wow. Artificial intelligence. <laughs> they can do it. I don't, I don't know how to do it, but it can be done. I like in it. In fact, we were developing something like that in this innovation. But obviously, the main challenge with CA, and it was my challenge, not the company, is that CA was not a translation agency. They were a software development company. So even if I was trying to develop tools for localization, that was not in focus. So obviously we were able to put together all these tools and, and, and MVPs, but they wouldn't develop them because obviously that's not what they are. It doing. wasn't their business. Yeah. Yeah. So that was good because some of the ideas we had at that time are starting to happen now. Their team is now that they have a lot of artificial intelligence and they're able to do to automate. Etc. So going back to your question, or if I have preferred tools, no, not yet. Maybe, maybe I'll end up developing the best tool <laughs> ever. I don't know. But another area which I think TMS in general uh, still have some um, area of improvement is on data reporting. The way data is reported in the TMS, quality data. Because review, contribute, everything should be done in the TMS with proper categorization, etc. So, time to delivery, Warcons. Warcons is maybe the only one they, they are doing good because that's how they get, you know, how the cost is calculated. But time to deliver, mm, uh, review work, sample review, uh, posted distance. I mean, anything you can imagine. The CMS should be able to provide this type of information in a way it can be digested. I mean, some of these CMS, they do have plenty of export files with logs, amazing, but you need to go to an external tool and, you know, and import that data and start trying to create this. And this data, and typically you don't have it uh, real time because there is this import export process in the middle. So for me, this is another area of or, you know, where these, these um, tools can be improved. Mm -hmm. 
Another area, in my opinion, for improvement, now that we have data, for example, and this is not so focused on the tool, but on the client, is on what to translate. This is one of the challenges we used to have at CA. Basically, uh, we were translating what uh, product owners or product teams or market or salespeople were thinking they wanted to sell. Okay, but it was very hard to get a feedback on the usage of this localized version. Mm -hmm. Obviously, previous the cloud area, there was no way of getting any feedback. Once you go to the cloud, then you calculate the names, time downloads, etc. It's kind of you know it's easier, or this is an area where you can start improving. Although very difficult to 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 know which language or which local the user is using because it's depending on the browser, etc. But taking translation decisions based on the usage of this content or the demand of a particular market, that's also very, very interesting. Uh, gaming companies are doing a good job there in gaming localization because they do have first time, uh, first hand, sorry, first hand data or information on the user behavior of the user experience so that they're doing a good job because for them it's very easy to collect this information and make the right decisions on what to translate and obviously because gaming is so such a personal thing that your your audience is going to be you know anybody that wants to play you know with software companies like ca uh the audience in fact the audience for large companies like ca was developers and today most of the developers know english at least from you know from a reading or you know, a development point of view so you may not need to translate to that many languages because and the way the documentation is done today is really different different in the area <laughs> the beginning they were you have this huge user guide that was static that you cannot edit now documentation doesn't exist anymore it's really a database and users can add content and support add content and developers add content so this is a huge marimangum of text that may not follow any any static uh, structure so that's also very interesting to analyze yeah let's talk about the user generated content like how do you think the continuous localization fits in because i think that's like a primary candidate for full automation right without even like any person touching anything and the only way continuous localization can fit in is using machine translation or user generated content i mean there's no way you can translate and keep everything up to date or simply user-generated content. So machine translation is the right, to, right direction to go. Generate multilingual bots for help desk, for example, and and get neural machine translation. And you know, neural machine translation is amazing. How good it is, and how quickly you can train it to get. You know, language to fulfill the language requirement. In the past, language means, or at least in our area, means grammar, terminology, and structure. Now, 
you know, there's no, you know, people speak in a very different way. They, they do make typos, they invent new words and abbreviation. So machine translation has to quickly pick up this information and reuse and use that for localization. Mm -hmm. It has happened to me, I'm in the area, in the industry, it happened to me. The answer was in Spanish, it was good. <laughs> My only, the only thing I found strange is that it was taking quite long. It was, it was, the reply was taking long. Taking long maybe means five minutes. It's not, but that was what I made me think. This is machine translation. I don't know if there was some posterity because there are companies that, you know, do that. Yes, have yes, yes. Forced doing posterity on empty. But the output was really good and I had, it was good enough for me to have a conversation because my, uh, my self company was, you know, I was not able to call it from home because there was some kind of issue with the call, you know, with the uh, cell phone company, whatever. But it was amazing. It was amazing how, how good they are. You mentioned the term management by exception. So for people who don't know what it means, could you quickly describe what it means? Yeah. Management by exception makes, uh, means um, to set up a process in a way that everything is automated. Everything goes, you know, and it's also there's no surprises that, you know, you, you have certain standard content, standard pool of translation, standard translation memory. So you did set up a process, you set up deadlines, requirements, and it goes along. That's management by exception. The only thing, the exception means that if something happened, like deadline not met, uh, TM not applied, whatever, something happened, you should be able to identify this with a ticket, with a flag, with a dashboard, so you can take an action. So your action is to solve whatever exception or whatever problem is. Your action as PM in that case is not setting up the workflow. This is something you do, you do once, and you reuse many. So this is a concept of management by exception. Um, again, going back to the previous question of if small companies need that, depends, depends of, uh, of the volume. I mean, you, the volume is more smaller. You don't have like huge jobs or small jobs, but very frequently, maybe you don't need such a huge setup to manage by exception. This might be a tricky question. I'm not sure if you can answer it, but let's give it a try. So when we are talking about small companies or medium or large, it doesn't matter. In all cases, it will be the ROI, right, of the investment. So I'm wondering like how you would help these companies determine the ROI, because that's like a very um, fuzzy question in our industry as well, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Uh, and I have a colleague that you know he works with us in one of the webinars we do explaining all this shiftless approach and he is specialized in roi oh, nice. so roi <laughs> is not return of investment i mean it is return of investment obviously but not in an area roi really means um how more automation you can do in a process, how quickly you can be, how happy your customer is going to be. So it's very difficult. It's very difficult to get the, like a numeric ROI. It's, it's, it's really impossible sometimes. 
but you can seize the opportunity, for example, the opportunity you are missing, the market opportunity you are missing if you don't localize. So instead of trying to see, you know, we spend X now and if we automate, we will spend X minus whatever. You should say, okay, we have a market, a potential market in China or in Japan of that many millions. If we don't localize, these guys will not be using this software in this language. Obviously, it depends on the software, depend on the product. But that's sometimes the idea that we have to we have to put together in order to justify an ROI. And I or I is really the opportunity you are facing, and also the user experience. Um, as I said, we already mentioned that if you are developing for developers in China, maybe they speak good English enough to, to, you know, to set up your product or, and if they need help, you can go through an automatic, uh, uh, chat box. So maybe your focus is not to do full perfect translation of the full content. But if you're doing that for Japan, maybe that's an, you know, it's, it has to be a different approach. Because the requirements in Japan are very different. If you're translating for France or Canada, which the sensibility or the cultural aspects of the language are so important, you may want to take all the decisions. Okay. So that's, I think, for me, the, the way the, the ROI should be presented on, on taking into account the cultural intelligence, this cultural requirements for the different uh, countries. And looking at the opportunity you are missing. Obviously, you can also add a part to say, okay, now you have 20 people managing the system and maybe you can, you know, you can reduce to less people, more automation. Obviously, this is also some, you know, a part you can also bring in. But when you go into those companies that they don't really have any process in place, calculating the baseline, it's going to be even impossible because there are so many parties involved. That you cannot really calculate the baseline. So, so finding the ROI or demonstrated or putting together an ROI in a traditional way, again, in our industry, you really have to go for these other ways of, of analyzing and calculating. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, another ROI is that the globalization team or the localization team, especially for large corporations, it's really so across all the departments. So we end up helping other people to make their life easier with a proper content management system, with a proper requirements for localization, etc. So this is also important, you know, because we are really facilitating somebody else day to day. So this has also has to be taken into account from a right point of view. Okay, that it's not that we as localization are gonna reduce cost is that this other team is going to be able to produce more because we are simplifying the, the way they, they content or they outsource the content for localization. When we're talking about the technologies, <clears throat> you mentioned AI. So obviously it's related to NMT. I'm wondering if you have like any other ideas, how you think AI will affect localization? Well, oh, what, obviously about how we will report data, the different data of usage and from the localization perspective, and also from the consumer perspective. I think that's uh, also uh, uh, very critical on areas that we are going to improve. 
And another area which is not that popular, but my personal opinion is going to start growing, is on subtitling and doubling. Uh, we are going more and more to video um, visual content. Uh, and getting that subtitle, and obviously this is where inter artificial intelligence plays a major role also on how can you move change, uh, sorry, text, sorry, speech to text. How can you automate all this transcreation from this um, channel to another? And how can you do that? I think that's also going to be um, very, very, very critical in the future. And this is starting now. Um, if you listen to my kids talking to Alexa or or Siri, they're friends. If I talk to Alexa, it's a nightmare. She doesn't <laughs> understand me. <laughs> I try to tell her, please turn off the light. And this woman, her kids come and say, Mama, tell her that. And you know, it works. So the, the new generations, the, the, the way they grow, uh, they are inheriting all these new patterns. So we need to start thinking on that because they're not going to be reading localized text. They're going to be listening to something. And as they set up something, they will have a voice saying, click here, add this comment. I don't know, but that's going to happen. So we need to stay there. And again, all this is fostered by artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Same as with the click. I mean, again, my kids, they don't click anything. They don't click a mouse anymore. They basically swipe the, the screens. They, they, you know, they, they do all this manual swapping up and down. They even found my kid the other day. He, he was trying to light, uh, to, you know, to light the, the, the light. And he was, instead of clicking on the, um, on the, um, commute, he was basically Swapping with his hand, like trying to, and see, he don't mean it doesn't work. The light, it doesn't work. No, no, you have to click. And he was surprised <laughs> because he was used to, you know, to, to, I don't know if this is the right word, but you know, when you move your hand, yeah, it's swipe left, yeah, yeah, swipe. And I thought, well, man, yeah, of course. I mean, that's the world you're living in. Of course, this is all technology clicking, you know, turn on the light. Yeah, I thought that when you were saying this, I thought that you meant like he had like an app on his phone and he was like swiping it to like turn off. No, the... no, no. Basically, on the on, on the, the actual thing, physical on, on the actual thing oh. <laughs> on the actual thing. Got it. Got I mean, first of all, he was uh, he was disappointed because he was shouting at the thing, and nothing happened. You know, the light would not turn on. And secondly, he was trying to on the wall trying to do that. He's a baby, obviously, but, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's how they are growing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Maybe one thing we could discuss is <clears throat> the quality aspect of continuous localization and all this automation. Do you think there is an impact or do you think it actually improves the quality? I think it improves the quality. Again, uh, continuous localization by definition means small uh, chunks of text. So the quality is easy to keep quality, high quality with a small chunks of test. Obviously, and for me, especially in software documentation, localization, in context translation is also a must. There is a lot of waste 
or managing queries up and down. And this is one of the sort of project manager tasks that is really huge. Managing spreadsheets, sending spreadsheets somewhere else, sharing spreadsheets with different languages with the same question, etc. Yeah. So, so um, um, continuous localization quality is going to be improved as long as you are able to automate all these uh, non-profitable tasks. Right, for imagine just add a comment in the software, or uh, maybe ask the you know make sure developers are aware of uh, that variables they need to interest. They just need to know what are they going to be replaced by if it is a day or a number or an order, whatever, and that comment as you develop the software. And because you have developed in small chunks, it's going to be it's not like an over you know you can this is not something you can do. Uh, as an afterthought, you know, when have you finished a software, you cannot say, okay, now comment all the variables. No, this is not going to work. But if they do it from the very beginning, they add comments, which translators can see in the cat tool. But uh, these variables will be replaced for that. That's extremely helpful, and this supports uh, quality. One of the tools we developed uh, at CA was basically um, what we call uh, context TM. Okay, and the developers, when they were supposed to turn over the files, for every word that was ambiguous, like file, but that's file means it's a noun, it, it's a verb. So for those strings that were single language, single word strings, we created a database, and that was a huge effort, but we did create a database with different options. File in German may have one, two, three, Possible translation in Spanish, one to in that other country or language may not be ambiguous. So we would ask the trans developers, okay, what do you mean? File as in uh, file, like known as, and based on the translation, on the sorry, based on the answer of the developers, and basically they have to choose one A, B, C. So it was really easy for them, or they could even add a comment if they wanted. We already had the translation in OTM for all languages. So that particular segment that was some V words, the translator would not even get it for translation because we would get a, get the translation from this context TM. That's what we call it. So that we were eliminating a huge amount of queries and waste and uh, last minute updates and uh, you know and going waiting for developers to answer the queries, etc. So that type of, of uh, approach really helps in continuous localization. Again, this is education. We go back to the education part. We have to ask developers, you know, to learn that if they comment any possible wiki ambiguity or variable from a translation point of view, this is going to be continuous. Otherwise, it's not going to be continuous. There's one more thing which affects continuity. Especially agile in an agile environment, which is testing, localization testing. This has changed a lot in the industry. And I know if you used to work with Auto, for Autodesk, <laughs> I'm sure you were involved in huge rounds of localization testing. Yes, yes, yes. In different languages. That is not happening anymore. You need to use pseudo localization. If you use pseudo localization, you can test it in any language. Can you, can you, can you explain for people who don't know what it means, oh, pseudo localization? Sure. Sure, pseudo localization is basically to to replace the 
the, the, the text, the source text, English or whatever language, with the same text with uh, prefix and suffix, um, which is like nonsense text. And typically you try to add some non-standard characters. Mm -hmm. So you can really see that like accents or, or special numbers. Or, so, so you can see that it displays okay in, in, in any environment. So basically developers will get this file pseudo translated and we, they, they would create a build, mm -hmm. pseudo translated build. And in that pseudo translated build or pseudo localized build, they are able to identify potential issues, potential, uh, um, issues, display issues or, uh, truncations, for example, in German, most probably the text is going to be longer. So you have to make sure developers allow enough space with the cloud systems now, post-based incentives are easier, but basically developers can be trained and educated to identify, or testers can be trained and educated to identify these potential localization issues and get them fixed before localization. And this one, this is compliant. Then you can send it to translation, send it back, and you don't need to do any more testing like it used to be in the past because it has really been testing this pseudo language. That's what I mean by continuous localization and pseudo localization. Sorry. I know that we are doing some pseudo localization and I can see the benefit of testing pseudo localized build at early stage. But I'm still wondering, like, if there's something that we're missing if we're not testing the actual localized product. Let's put it that way. There is no risk zero approach. Okay, what you can do is to reduce the risk. If you solve pseudo localization, if you provide translation in context to translators, basically they they see the you know they are translating on a web application, they see the context as they present, or they have a screenshot. Uh, associated to each uh, stream they are translation, translated. If you control the text, the source text, if you write in a way, you eliminate ambiguities. You, um, the, you write for machine translation, okay? Like proper sentences, taking into account that this is software, so you may not have proper sentences. But if you follow certain best practices, and if you eliminate also uh, possible ambiguities like variables, uh, in the meaning of the variables, or, or if you alleviate hard-coded strings, which is, is what you identify during this localization, then the risk of of making mistakes and it's, is really reduced. So maybe you can go for for that option. You have to think that if you want, if you need to add testing. Uh, like traditional testing in an agile environment, in an agile localization environment or agile development environment. If you are testing, that means it's not agile or it's not continuous anymore. So it's really difficult to do anything afterwards. Maybe you, you know, maybe because everything is so flexible now from a development point of view, maybe you want to release whatever, you know, if you follow these best practices, release what you have and maybe then you can spend some time doing a final validation on the actual live application okay you can you can take the risk and if all of a sudden you realize there are a lot of mistakes then there's something wrong something but putting together this plan on on doing this this 
final validation on the last application, it should be the right approach for this agile development process because it's so easy to update those files. You know, maybe if you find a mistake, you update the files in the system and to create another build, they you know they do builds every night sometimes. So it's really you know it's gonna be twenty four hours that they are going out there. So you can take you can take the risk. Terminology you mentioned that but terminology is also key here. You know, you manage terminology properly. So so you know translators can concentrate on translating with the property before we ventured into testing localization, you were talking about the queries and that like the queries are greatly reduced uh, with continuous localization. But I can still imagine that there will be queries at some point. So I'm wondering because I don't know exactly like how this works, but if you have developers and the content goes flows directly to translators, how can translators ask queries back to developers so that it's not stuck on PMs. Okay, uh, we're talking about software development mm -hmm. now. This mm -hmm. may, my proposal may not work for marketing stuff, for example. Okay, but there's a very easy way of doing that. Connect your TMS to uh, developers' issue tracking system, Jira or whatever they use it. So they will they will get a query in the in the in the queue, mm -hmm. and they have to answer it because otherwise. They cannot deliver. The key here, so that's the solution. Basically, make sure it becomes developer problem. It is not project <laughs> manager problem. It has to be developer problem. The point here is how to do these queries in a, in the right way, and this is a translator's education. Okay, you cannot ask translators cannot ask. Say, I don't understand. What do you mean? Or what is the translation? You really have to educate developer, and this is something we did at CA. You have to educate translators on right ask the right questions. For example, if you have a doubt, something is ambiguous, or the grammar in this grammar is something you cannot understand, you need to say, okay, well, do you mean A or do you mean B? Make it very easy for developers. Developers are developers, ones and zeros. You don't really need to be them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to some things that are to precise, let's make it very simple for them. So, you know, uh, the, the translator has to be located in writing, asking the right questions on, uh, in the right way. And you have to make sure you don't duplicate questions. You don't want the same question as, uh, uh, asked by different translators, translators yeah. or different languages, things like that. But that would be the approach. Integrate that into the development path. We have not talked about dumbness criteria in the agile software development. But localization compliance internationalization should, should be part of the bonus criteria, meaning that you cannot localize or the 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 the, 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 the iteration in agile is not finished until localization is done and, and test and completed properly. Okay. Uh, if we go maybe we am going a little bit technical, but in the agile uh, framework uh internationalization or localization are not considered like donors criteria they are really um considered as uh non uh, i don't remember the name right now uh but they are not uh, they are not core functions they are something that is transversal to different teams that they don't believe really, you know they are not core components they should become core components 
this is something I have already discussed with the Agile framework uh, team. You know, hopefully someday they will, you know, I will be able to put the business case in place. So they change the requirement. I'm sorry, non-functional requirement. Exactly, localization and internationalization are considered non-functional requirement, meaning it's good to have, but it's not an obligation, and they should become functional requirements. So donors criteria of the different iterations should be done if localization is required. Has to be done. And if you, you know, you have two weeks iteration, or uh, you know, developers will want to automate as much as possible. Otherwise, they, they won't be able to do it. Right. You're talking about <clears throat> the quality of NMT, and you were saying that mm -hmm. it's like very, very good. I know in my earlier episodes, I was covering an article. I don't know his name, but I think he's the father of Tratus. He created Tratus. And he mm -hmm. was saying also pretty much the same thing that NMT will eventually take over because the quality is getting better, better every day. And he was thinking about how the role of translators will change. So I'm wondering what do you think will happen to translators if NMT gets super good? Hmm. Good question. Um, first of all, maybe we should point the question in a different way. Way It's not that the NMT is getting good or super good, which is super, but it's really fulfilling the requirements. It doesn't have to be you know, the, 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 let's don't talk about quality, like grammatic, grammar, etc. No, it's really fulfilling the requirement for that particular use case. Okay, okay, if you are in a chat box, you don't need perfect grammar. Right. You need understandable content. So, MT is getting better and better for that particular area that is really fulfilling the scope of that, of that translation or the expectation, the user, uh, the user experience. Mm, which is something we are not talking about, and we should be start talking more. more. So, what happened for the translators? Yeah, uh, translation on the areas we are translating today may not be as critical as it is today. So, there will be a shift. Translators will become more boutique translations. So, translating content which is not that technical or which is not um, mainly for more focus on marketing or creativity content, etc. But technical content will, will change. And translators will become more maybe post editors or validators of the neural machine translation, uh, depending on the areas. But I do see a shift on, on the way translators work. I definitely, but I don't think they will disappear. But they will have to work in a different way. It's, it's similar, if I'm allowed to say that, to the uh, you know, translators the way you used to be in the early 70s, which basically they were, uh, you know, they had a book, uh, something in paper, like a, a book, and they basically were translating in, in, in a word, in a very old word, and they have to print it and send it back to the editor, things like that. Mm, that will change. Technology will help us to, to work in another way. One of the questions, I think we could ask, and I may not have the answer, so I'm asking myself a question right now, is what will happen with language service providers? The way lang language service providers are set up today, that's also very interesting because there's intermediation 
I think R4C will also be one of the of trends we will see in the future. Because if you have technology that can do or can take tasks that traditionally were doing a language we provided, which basically, for example, having a pool of translators, um, technology will allow to go more from a crowdsourcing approach. A crowdsourcing meaning you pay the translators for what they done. It's not free translation. That was something that was very confusing at the beginning. You know, basically, translators can self-assign the task that they get in a particular poll. These tasks that are uh, appropriate for them based on the expertise, on the uh, knowledge area, uh, on the deadline, etc., on the previous tasks, etc. So why do you need a language service provider? If technology can put or connect the requester with the translator. Let's see how it works. I'm not saying that language service providers will disappear, but I think they have to reinvent or they will end up reinventing themselves. There will be a separation of our technology providers and language service, like pure language service providers. I think this is happening right now. Not many companies are able to, to, Deliver both and those that are doing, which are the huge, big traditional LSPs or, or, or MLB. I think they are getting very old technology and they need to invest a lot in make that technology more flexible. So let's see how it goes. I'm not saying they're going to disappear. I'm not saying something's going to happen in the short time, but in the long run, now, and the wrong time, this is going to change. And maybe one of the new the, the transformation, they, they, in my opinion, they will go through, will end up doing this more boutique translation for other type of content or other tasks like validating or different content or testing applications, like live application, not traditional testing, or doing uh, ABC testing. I mean, there are a lot of other areas they can they can commute in a way. Everything which is related to cultural intelligence and user experience. How to write, how to translate, how to, what to translate, this type of analysis or this is going to be something that an LSP or multi-language vendor could be doing in, in, in the future. So the, the business, I don't think is any longer in the translation itself, but should be in this added value in these other, other, um, uh, tasks or services that they can provide. Uh, I was talking with an LSP the other day and they were doing, uh, very good on, on post editing machine translation for chat box. Okay, so basically, uh, the chatbot was using neural MT with, you know, the intents and the utterance and all these, they were, this neural MT was trading with this, um, this type of content. Um, so the communication was between the cost, the user and the requested was by via neural, but all this content was kind of stored and was sent to translation afterwards. So those translations were adjusted. And then the, 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 the empty engine was retrained. 
on a, so so the, the 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 task was really to adjust in a very simple way because again it was a, an IT chat box so you don't expect perfect grammar but it was cleaning up those empty answers yeah it's not even posterity it's really like cleaning up so it can be the engine can be trained out of that so it's not the actual translation because the surface is already done completed. But recreating content, creating content to train the engine. That for me was one example of a new tasks that those companies maybe end up doing. So let's let's look into the crystal ball one more time and <laughs> let's talk about project managers because we were talking about project managers before. I knew, I knew you were gonna hit me with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just wondering, like, what do you, what do you think? How how do you see their role shifting with more automation happening? The way I see uh, the the role shifting is really on educating the requesters, educating the the business, understanding their their the requirements, and setting the proper strategy for that particular customer on that particular content. And helping translators on the day to day, not like looking for translator or selecting translators, but really helping them that they have all the information that they get the queries answer, if any, that, uh, validating that the files that are sent to the translators through the system are compliant or follow certain best practices, etc. And acting or taking action if there is an exception of something goes wrong. Or whatever reason, that should be the exception. What do you think is wrong with our industry? <laughs> <laughs> Where do I, I think, start? <laughs> uh, no, I I think we have a great industry. I love this industry, and I always have things to learn. Obviously, that's 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 not a joke. It's true, but. And I think it happens with any industry. Okay, my impression is that we are getting old. The technology is getting old. We are not able to to accommodate or to innovate, taking into account the changes that are happening. Okay, uh, so that is a, that has a lot of opportunities, a great opportunity, let's put it that way. But one of the customers I have now, they are doing an RFI for a TMS. And we are evaluating uh, several TMAs in order to fulfill the customer's requirements. And what I have noticed is that those different TMAs, they try to change the way the customer works so it can fit the TMS. And, and that's not, should be flexible. Yeah. It's really, you know, we have this discussion about with one of the customer or the potential TMAs and they were, you know, I was not really understanding what they were saying because one of the workflows we may have is just machine translation. We, you know, just get something machine translated, get it back so you can test or something. And the TMS particular, the focus was the TM. And they might realize that you cannot create the workflow without going through a TM because the TM is used to be the center of the TMs. And things are changing. Again, you may not want to use a TM because your content may not be good enough 
because it's only most interested, so you don't want to maintain TMs which have not been properly posterited. But those TMs may be created uh, later. Okay, so that flexibility, and this is just an example, that flexibility is where what we should be able to to accommodate and and in defense of the technologies provided is not easy it's not easy because uh, some of these tools are very old so they have a very solid structure very very solid structure but it's not flexible and today everything works the way software is developed is with the small models that uh, you know, containers that they work independently and you just get the container you need for that particular action. And traditionally those software companies, all software technology are more like a core big technology which you cannot change. And I understand it's not easy to reinvent or to revamp or to create something such as new. But I think we should move away from this monolithic, uh, tools and try to go to, to something more flexible in order to accommodate the requirements of the customers, which will change continuously. So how does your day look like right now when you're working for your own business? When do you wake up? How do you start your day? Oh my God, it's really, um, I'm learning to work when I have opportunities because I, you know, I, Apart from the particular situation we have now with this COVID-19 pandemic, which is totally you know, uh, unexpected and unusual, my day-to-day -day is really, uh, um, spend most of my time in LinkedIn, reading what other people say, understanding what are the requirements, looking for articles to to do, to understand, get new ideas, or to understand how things are changing, etc. So that's most of my time, really, trying to get these ideas or to think how can we do things in a different way. And when I'm working on particular customers, most of my time is really talking to the users, understanding the requirements. And then I will write at the document or a procedure or a, or a wiki page for that particular customer with the information they want. But most of my time is really talking, talking, talking and communicating with everybody. It's, it's, it's I mean, I have not realized that until you make my question that most of my day is really because traditionally I was supposed to be productive, you know, producing something, but I, you know, I'm not. I'm really thinking and trying to see how can accommodate the new tendencies to the different customers to their requirements. Um, another thing I, I do spend a lot of time is participating in other initiatives, which are not directly related with my company, but, but with connecting to other people and especially women. I'm part of women in localization. I spend some time there and leading the metrics part to trying to understand how can we make the metrics for the organization. But, uh, and that's really good because you happen to meet a lot of people, which is very inspiring. And it's really helps me to talk to people in other companies and to understand their challenges. So connecting to people, especially women, that we have this, this amazing, you know, way of, 
sharing information and mentoring each other, it's really good part of my job. I also participate in you know, some other local um, organizations like Wompreneur, which is um, uh, a community for women in, in, in entrepreneurs. Um, and talking to them and participating in the events, communicating, explaining my challenges really helps me. Help me to understand what people need, what can they I offer to them. So when I started my own company, I had like a very naive and great idea from my point of view of what I wanted to do. And my my obsession was to get a business plan. This is, you know, I'm going to do this. And through all this journey, I have realized that that's in, in today's industry, uh, unless you have like something you want to develop a prototype, uh, you have, you know, you know what you want. Um, the way you have to approach is really having the, the ability to understand and take the decisions or provide whatever customer wants or your potential client wants based on their needs. Don't try to put your idea to apply to sell your idea. No, it doesn't work because your idea may be great, but may not fix to that particular customer. However, if you pivot it a little bit and you open your, your eyes and, and, and you don't stubborn with that, your idea, it really gives you a lot of opportunities. So talking, talking, listening, 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 it's really most part of my day today. Do you have any morning, do you have any morning ritual? Like what do you do first thing in the morning and how exactly do you start working? Like, what is the first thing you do? Okay, I do something which I hate, but I do. <laughs> uh, I used to do before the pandemic. Yeah, no, I'm not. I mean, I hate. That's not a hate. I mean, I'm not an early person. I'm okay. a morning, so I'm a late person. So I kind of more dressed at night. But what I do in the mornings is, or I used to do before the pandemic, is that I would get up at quarter to six, which is very very early for me, and with Two best friends in the neighborhood, we would go for a walk, like a 45 minute walk in winter, summer, anytime. And so by a quarter to seven, um, yeah, quarter to seven, we would be back home. So to start, you know, kids and all this stuff. But that 45 minutes talking with my best friends, walking quickly and doing some exercise, it's really uh, very fulfilling. And typically we don't talk about work, work because each of us work in a different thing. But it really helps me to, to wake up, to listen to people, to learn how to listen, to understand what are, what are the requirements in other areas. But that's something I can apply in, in my, in my, in my day to day. So yes, this morning walking, sometimes we walk, sometimes we go to the swimming pool, which is good because then I do my, Typically, when I swim, I, I do my to-do list. I will, you know, I get out of the swimming pool with a very clear <laughs> idea of what it's like. Meditation, I guess. But I, you know, when I get out of the swimming pool, I'm clear on what what are the priorities. Oh, is that where you plan your day? At yeah, in pool? the swimming oh. pool. It's really stupid, but it works. It really works. So, so does it mean does it mean that you prefer to-do lists versus calendars? Do you use calendars just for meetings? How do yes. you combine these two? No, yeah, um, uh, I'm learning, okay, because I'm <laughs> really learning, but pr prioritizing is very important. It's 
So trying to get the big picture of what you have and assigning time to each task. So I'm going to spend four hours with this customer from that particular task. So I'm going to spend two hours in the media because you can, you know, could spend days in the media. I'm going to spend that many hours um, on writing best practices for whatever. Assign, you know, trying to get the whole week. Uh, typically, typically I, I leave Friday blank because there are all, all, always something which is suspected on Friday, so I put that on Friday. And typically I try to do like three days for customers, one day for media, etc., and Friday for whatever could that would fit. So that's how I organize. And I always try to, to make sure I have this list of to do or what to do, assign time, you know, to make sure I'm productive and recategorize it depending on how it goes. So this is something I'm still working on that and, and, and I'm learning. I, you know, I'm not going to say I'm the perfect one because I'm not at all, but I'm, I'm learning. This is very difficult, different to what I used to work in in the corporation because in the corporation basically it was like you know putting down fires all the time <laughs> and, and now i have the impression i can you know organize the team and assign time depending on yeah tasks the time management is, is very important and one of these um, associations i'm participating in here in Barcelona, they are really preaching on how to do this time management how to organize how to uh, set priorities uh, in order to be very productive. And, and I'm learning a lot. I mean, I'm really learning a lot by talking to these ladies. <laughs> <laughs> what are you curious about right now? My problem is that I'm curious of anything. <laughs> that's that's a problem because that means I, I know. You know, yeah, you have to prioritize, right? <laughs> you have to prioritize. So I'm the one that somebody says, "Oh, maybe we should do." I can do it. <laughs> or maybe we should go in either with the family. Somebody needs to organize. I can organize. You know, so I I I try to stop doing things as much as possible because I would. I mean, I would do a lot of things. I love. Uh, what am I curious about? I'm being curious about going back to the technology part, to the um, to all this um, quantum technology, uh, you know, this new technology which is approaching regarding the how to maintain all these databases, how to to trace all the uh, information this you know um bitcoins you know technology be, be behind the blockchain blockchain sorry blockchain exactly i'm very curious because i think this is something which will be able to apply to an industry i don't know how yet but definitely we will be able so this is one of the areas that i i have to say i don't know much and I know there are a couple of initiatives starting to think of that. So that's an area I think we should we should start looking at together with artificial intelligence. Yeah, you should definitely check out episode number 24, <laughs> where I spoke with Oksana Tkach, and she actually had an idea which relates uh, blockchain to translation industry and how translators could use it. So I will listen to it for you, <laughs> because this is 
going to happen. I told you, I didn't know about this episode, but you know, yeah, I told yeah, you this yeah, is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. If you want, I can get you in touch with her if you find it interesting sure, sure, based sure. on what she says. Okay, uh, let's wrap it up. Is there, is there anything I should have asked you, but I didn't? Mm, no. I think... I think... <laughs> So I did a pretty good job, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm surprised because I, when you mentioned that there was going to be like a two hours call, I thought, wow, this is not going to happen. It's impossible. <laughs> but this is two hours already. We did My it. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of good information that you shared with us. Thank you. Yeah, I hope it was helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, so final words from yourself, if you could talk to everyone in the industry, what is it what you would say? Start challenging. Start challenging the technology, the process, the, the way of doing things. Because mm, things are going to change. And we need to challenge and don't be afraid of changes. Changes are good. So let's, you know, look at every new challenge like an opportunity of doing something different, of learning something different. I know this is very standard. Everybody, you know, it's like a mantra. But, you know, even this opportunity with COVID-19, I mean, my husband, we are, you know, we are very opposite characters. You know, <laughs> we love each other, but we are opposite characters. So for him, this is like, oh my God, 40 days lockdown home. This is horrible. I cannot go biking. For me, it's an opportunity to spend more time with my husband, to cook. I do cooking, which I'm a horrible cooker. But now it's, it's getting better and better. I'm reading a lot. I'm spending time with kids. I'm, you know, doing sport, following this Instagram stuff, and I'm doing sport with the kids and listening to music, watching series. So for me, it's been locked down. I'm working on my project, on my website, and all these tasks that didn't have time. So what I want to say is that there's always different ways of doing things. You can be depressed or upset because your technology is, is I don't want to say not good because it may be great technology, but it has to be aligned to the to the trends in, 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 in the area, in the evolution, in the innovation, or you can take that as an opportunity to go further. This is something I also learned at CA because we really developed amazing technology that was never used basically because it was not the right time because uh, it was not the right priority but most of the things we developed at that time like eight years ago they are now in the market so so i mean although i was extremely frustrated at that time as you can imagine i learned a lot of it and i think i can talk about things the way i talk now because i have this previous frustrating experience where i you know, I could not understand why such a good idea was not working. And basically, it was not a problem with the idea. It was a problem with the moment, the time, the stakeholders, etc. So it's always good to, to have the flexibility of mind to adapt to new challenges and new technologies. All right. Okay. Thank you very much, Patricia. Nice to talk to you. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Talk to you. Thank you. Bye.